Well, good evening, everyone. Very warm welcome to you all to our service. It's great to see friends from near and far. It's great to be with you again tonight. Uh, my name is Bob Aykroyd. I've, I'm from, not originally, but I'm from Edinburgh. I teach at our seminary, Edinburgh Theological Seminary. It's a great pleasure and privilege to be with you tonight. I'm just going to read a few verses from Isaiah 43. This is verses 1 to 7. This is our call to worship, and this really kind of captures um, the theme tonight, the way in which God is calling to himself a people. And he describes these people as his children, as his sons and his daughters. And he's gathering them from the four compass points. He's gathering them from the north and from the south and from the east and from the west. Isaiah 43, but now... Thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be, bur be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Amen. Let's worship God. We're going to sing the familiar words, Psalm 67. It's the short meter, the first version. Lord, bless and pity us. Psalm 67, shine on us with thy face, that the earth thy way and nations all may know thy saving grace. Let's stand to sing those words of Psalm 67.
Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for gathering us together on this Sunday evening. We thank you that we are reminded yet again that on the first day of the week, the Lord Jesus arose from the dead, conquering death, conquering sin, conquering evil, and triumphantly ruling and reigning now and forever. We ask, Lord, that you would remind us that on this day he met with men and women, his disciples, and showed them the evidence that he was alive. So we thank you today that we gather in the name of the risen and in the living Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is powerful and the one who is personal, the one who is able and willing to help and to keep and to protect. So we thank you that we are reminded in the gospel that you are with us, that we are reminded of the cross that you are for us, and that through the work of the Holy Spirit you now dwell within us. We ask that you would encourage us tonight, that as we sing your praise, that we would sing with joyful hearts, and that as we come to you in prayer, that we would come, yes, with the spoken prayer of one, but each one of us in our own hearts would be pouring out either our troubles, our trials, our discouragements, our hopes, our fears, that we would know that you, the living God, hear the spoken prayer of one, you hear the silent prayer of all. Help us to know that you look upon us not with detachment or disinterest, but you look upon us with great love, with great affection, with great mercy. And even that passage that we read just a moment ago, that we are described as those who are precious, those who are honored, and those who are loved. So Lord, help us to see ourselves as you see us, that we are precious beyond measure, that we are loved with words spoken, yes, and loved in deed and in action. And that we are a people who is honored. That we are honored to call you our God. That we are honored to call Jesus our Savior. And that we are looked upon by you in this way. So Heavenly Father, we pray that tonight that you might enlighten our minds, enliven our hearts. That you might meet with us, you the living God and we your people that you would be building us up together, that not only would you meet us individually, but that you might meet us collectively and corporately. And we pray for each family that's here represented. We pray for each community that's represented. We pray that for the community in which we are met. And as we give you thanks for gathering us in this way, we do recognize that there are many. There are many that we know, many that we care and love, many who do not know or do not yet respond to you and to your grace and we might pr and we pray that you might extend your kingdom as we have heard you are calling your sons and your daughters you're calling them from afar you're calling them from the end of the earth you are summoning them from the north the south and the east and the west so for those of us who call upon your name we give you thanks for all that you have done all that you are doing, and all that you will bring to fruition and completion. And for those who as yet are looking upon these things from a distance, we ask, Lord, that you might enable them to see that this is a message of hope, a message of help, a message of grace, not for other people, but for them 
that they might see that this is a message perfectly designed to meet their deepest needs, to satisfy their greatest desires, and to meet with them at this very point in their own life experience. And we thank you that when you meet with people, you never leave us where you find us, but you draw us to yourself, you lead us forward, and you promise that one day you will bring us home. So hear these are prayers we ask, and do us good we pray, for the sake of Jesus. Amen. We're now going to sing, and I'm sure the tune will be familiar, Psalm 68, which is on page 85 of our Blue Psalm books, and it's going to be a not triple, but six eights, uh, so eight, 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 eight. Psalm 68, and again, this theme of God looking upon us as children, looking upon us as his family. May God arise and may his foes be scattered far and put to flight. That's the negative. And but verse 3, but may the righteous all be glad. May they rejoice and sing aloud. Sing praise to God. Sing praise to his name. Extol the one. That in verse 5, he is a father to the fatherless. Of widows rights the champion. Is God within his holy place. He gives a home to the forlorn. So we'll sing together verses 1 down to 10 of Psalm 68. Let's stand to sing.
Our reading is from the Old Testament, and we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 45. We'll read from verse 11 down to the end of the chapter. And this again, we're now in that second or that third portion of Isaiah, the final portion, which is a portion of hope, a portion of comfort, and a reminder that God has not left his people, but actually has a plan that not only includes his ancient people, but extends to the ends of the earth. And this, among many other passages, we we see the way in which God, through the prophet, is asking us to compare. Compare him with any other God. Compare him with any other presentation of what deity looks like. And by comparison, there is no comparison. And... In the Old Testament, well, primarily, tonight we're going to be looking at the idea of being brought into God's family, being one of his children. Now, primarily, this is a New Testament emphasis, but there are hints, there are echoes, and there are passages in the Old where we see that God indeed is a father, that God has children, he has sons, he has daughters, and we begin at verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Isaiah 45, verse 11, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him. Ask of me things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go into confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. And I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness. 
a word that shall not, shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Amen. And may God add his own blessing to this reading of his word. And as we have read, let us so sing. We're going to sing two halves of Psalm 103. We're going to sing the first half of Psalm 103 now, and then I'm going to preach uh, from, an old, from a New Testament portion of, of God's Word from John's Gospel, and then we'll sing the final portion of 103. So Psalm 103, if we'll, we will sing from the beginning. This is the Sing Psalms version. Praise God my soul with all my heart. Let me exalt his holy name. Forget not all his benefits. His praise my soul in song proclaim. And we'll stand together to sing verses 1 down to 11. Let's stand to sing. Praise God my soul with
just a moment, I'm going to read to us from John's Gospel, the first 14 verses of that Gospel. But I want to begin, uh, my minister James shared with me six things. Uh, This was um, J.I. Packer, who died, I think, just last year. He said every day he told himself these six things, and he encouraged every Christian to do the same. And these things to tell yourself at the beginning of every day or at the end of every day is, I am a child of God. God is my Father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My Savior is my brother. Every Christian is my brother or sister too. I'll repeat those at the end of the service. But today I'd like to focus on that first proposition. I am a child of God. And with that in mind, let's listen to these opening 14 verses of John's Gospel to see the way in which this truth is brought before our attention so clearly and I believe so powerfully. In the beginning, John chapter 1, verse 1, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. He gave the right to become children of God. Now I'm going to just share a little bit about my own story. I am from the United States, so I happen to have now two passports. I'm American and I'm British. But more interesting than that, I think, is that I have two birth certificates. That's less common. So I have a birth certificate dated the 15th of October, 1966. I know I don't look it. And that birth certificate reads that Thomas Gilroy, the son of Doris A. Gilroy, was born in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And the various details of my weight and of length and all that. I have a second birth certificate that reads Robert John Aykroyd. It was registered on the 18th of March, 1967. Parents, Dennis and Ruth Aykroyd, and my name and my details were registered on that birth certificate. So what we have here is an example of what adoption looks like. You were born, and you were given a name, and you were part of a family, 
And then at some subsequent point, you were adopted. You were brought into a new family, and in my case, given a new name, a new home, a new identity, a new birth certificate. And what we see in John chapter 1 is that truth highlighted for every believer in Jesus. Or if you're not yet a believer, it's laid out before you in such a way that you can grasp what is required of you. So I can say to you, so I, I teach theology, and I, there are certain subjects that I love to teach when I'm down at ETS. But this doctrine of adoption is one of my favorite subjects to teach because it is so personal to me. And as I said, I think it was the 18th of March, 1967, that I was adopted by Denny and Ruth Aykroyd. But I can also say that on the 19th of January, 1993, I was also adopted twice. Adopted by Denny and Ruth and adopted by God. Because on that day, the 19th of January, 1993, I became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as my first adoption changed everything, my second adoption changed everything. And what is true for me personally is true for every one of God's children. Whether you've been a child of God for many, many years, whether you've been a child of God for just a few days, I'd like to just highlight a few things here because sometimes, and I'm guilty of this myself, so I, I said this morning that I work in a prison. And very often in a prison context, you can present the gospel in a, in a courtroom, with courtroom language. Paul talks about justification. Justification is a courtroom language where the judge declares the accused now to be not just acquitted, but declares that the accused is no longer guilty, but is now righteous or good. And the courtroom language is great. It's wonderful. But Packer, J.I. Packer, puts it this way. He said, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification, law court language. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. So I want to say to you tonight that if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you too can say, I am a child of God. And all the privileges that come to God's children belong to you. If you're not yet a Christian, I can show you in the Bible what God presents to you as the way by which you can come into this new and permanent, lasting relationship. John chapter 1, it's hard to say much new about this passage. It's magnificent in its language. It's lofty in its theology. But as just by way of introduction, it seems to me that these opening 14 verses are all about relationships. The first relationship we see is a relationship between Jesus, the Son, and God, the Father. Verses 1 to 3. We're told that there was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. In the beginning he was with God and all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that has been made. And just to make it clear who this Word is, it's not a puzzle. 
The answer is there in verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus the Son and God the Father are both God in all of their magnificence, in all of their glory. But there is this perfect relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus the Son is God now in the flesh. Quite literally, it means that he has moved into the neighborhood. He's now part of our human experience. God does not view us from a distance, but he's come down. He's come to experience life firsthand. And the language of John 1.14 is that language of literally pitching a tent or moving into the neighborhood. The second relationship that comes out is the relationship between Jesus and John. So John is a key figure. In fact, John is one of these pivot figures. He's the end of one era, and he points forward to the beginning of a new era. So just as we're told about the word, Jesus, in verse 6 we're told there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So John is a witness. John is not the light, but John is a signpost to the light. You and I, if we're Christians, we are not the source of light. But yet Jesus says, you are the light of the world. We reflect his light. We act as signposts to others. And John was a key signpost. And he literally bore witness concerning one who was to come. A prominent key figure, and yet not to be confused with with the one who came after him, who was far greater than John, and actually came before John. I know it's complicated, but John is the witness, Jesus is the main event. The next relationship we see is Jesus' relationship with the world. Verse 3 tells us that he is the one through whom everything is made. So Jesus is the creator. If you read Hebrews chapter 1, you will see that Jesus not only creates, but he sustains. And the rest of this passage, you'll notice in verse 9 of of John chapter 1, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So the world that he created... The world that he sustained is now the world that he's going to visit. And your natural expectation would be what a wonderful welcome he would receive. He's made all things. He sustains all things. He's now coming into the world. He's the source of light. He's the source of life. He was in the world, verse 10, and the world was made through him yet. You see, here's here's the... This is just the the, the key tension point that we see, that there's a yet. Yet, the world did not know him. He made the world. He sustains the world. He comes into the world, and the world does not recognize him, does not acknowledge him, does not know who he is. There's a disconnect. There's a... 
a case of mistaken identity. He seemed like an ordinary individual, and yet he was the creator of the world. And what's more, the, John narrows the focus, because not only did he come into the world proper, general, but he came to a subset of the world. He came to a subset of the people, his own people. You know, imagine, you go to your family home. You, well, you wouldn't knock, but you, you go to the family, the family home, door opens, and the door is slammed in your face. Well, that's just not, the, you don't expect that. You'd be welcomed by your family. You know, this is your home, come in. He came to his own. He came to his own people. And his own people did not receive him. So at the very beginning of John's Gospel, we see the d dramatic tension. The creator of the world, not recognized. His own people, not welcomed. And we see that, that there's a problem here. That there's Jesus, who is God. There's Jesus, who is light. And there's Jesus, who is life. There's John, who points to Jesus. Jesus comes into this world, and there is no welcome party. Jesus comes to his own people, and there is no reception. You see, they said no. And that brings us to the relationship I'd like to focus on tonight. Namely, the relationship that Jesus has with us. If our faith is in him, he is our elder brother, and we are members of his family. You're his younger brothers, younger sisters, but we're all part of the same family. Because you might think, verse 10, verse 11, and you think, well, that seems to be the end of the story, isn't it? The creator comes to the creation. The creation doesn't recognize him. The one who is part of a people comes to that people, and the people reject him. But Jesus doesn't take no for an answer. And that's an interesting point, because tonight, maybe you've said no for a long time. And you see, Jesus doesn't take no for an answer, and Jesus doesn't take your first answer. He's willing to let you change your mind. He's willing for you to think again. Because sometimes I think we don't get it right the first time. Many times we don't get it right the first time. Verse 12 begins, but to all who did receive him. You see, the initial response was negative. But there's a growing response which is positive. Sometimes we look at our circumstance and we say, Scotland is a secular country. Not many people go to church. Not many people read the Bible. Not many people identify as Jesus, as, as Jesus' followers. And that's true. But if you look at the world, the picture within the world is much different. You see, the 20th century was the century in which the Christian church has grown the most of any century. But the 20th century will be eclipsed by this century, the 21st century. And you see, the church is growing. It might not be growing in the north and the west, which is where we are, but I can tell you it's growing in the south and it's growing in the east. But listen to this. But to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, it's been a long time since I was in school. It's been a long time since I've taken a maths class. Been here long enough, I'll say maths. I'd like to say math, but I'll say maths. What God gives us here, what John gives us here, is a simple equation. 
A simple equation that a child can understand. Because he's telling us that two things added together equals a third. Two plus two equals four, for example. That's an equation. But the things here are not numbers. It's not a sum. But he says there are two things that are absolutely essential for you and I to do. The world does not know him. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive, who believed in his name, that's the first two of, of the, the equation. Receive and believe. If you receive Jesus, if you welcome Jesus, again, the, the language here very much is the language of an open door or a shut door. A, a welcome mat or a sign that says, go away. I, um, <laughs> I was visiting a friend this afternoon and I, had, I noticed that there was a little a sticker next to the door, and many people I'm sure have these stickers, that said, unwanted traders are not welcome. Please do not ring the door. Please leave. So I rang the door and I said to my friends, I said, I'm not an unwanted trader. Oh, they said, we know that, Bob. Please come in. And that's an illustration because what they did was they welcomed me in. They said, don't stand on the doorstep. Don't go away. Come in. Do you welcome Jesus? Do you welcome him in? Or do you keep him on the doorstep? Or do you send him on his way? That's the kind of language that's being described here. Receiving Jesus. That's the first part of the equation. The second part of the equation is about belief. You see, what you believe matters. What you believe about God matters. What you believe about Jesus matters. What you believe about you matters. Because I'll put it to you this way. If you believe that there is a God, and this God has a certain character and a certain nature, and this God has certain requirements and certain expectations, and then you begin to look at yourself and you say, God expects righteousness, goodness, purity, love. But I'm not the embodiment of righteousness, purity, love. You see, if you begin to understand something about what the God of the Bible is really like, and that's why we read Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah 45 says there are gods that you can carry in your arms. There are gods that you can create in your, with your hands. There are gods that you can create in your mind. The only problem, of course, is that these gods do not speak. They're mute. These gods do not hear. They're deaf. These gods do not act. They're inert. And these gods do not and cannot save. But if you have a knowledge of who God really is, and if you have a knowledge of who you, me, who we really are, you begin to grasp that there is a problem. God righteous, holy, pure. Me or you, unrighteous unholy, impure. We are made in his image. We are made by him. We are made for him. But our natural response to God is stay at a distance. Stay on the doorstep or better still, don't even ring. Just go on your way and leave me alone. 
So if we know the God of the Bible and we know ourselves, if we know both a right or at least have an insight into what God is really like and an insight into what we are really like, we begin to realize there's a problem. Something is missing. Something is broken. Something isn't the way it should be. My mind, my heart, my life. And you see, the gospel begins now to speak very clearly. We're told that the gospel is intended not for the pure, not for the good or for the godly. In fact, wherever you read the gospel in the, in the Bible, we're told that the, the gospel is intended not for the godly, but for the godless. It's intended not for the strong, but for the weak. And it's intended not for the saint, but for the sinner. And you see, if we grasp the terms and conditions of the gospel, understanding who God is and what he is like, who we are and what we are like, well, then we begin to understand why we need someone like Jesus. Not just someone like Jesus, we need him. Because there is no one like Jesus. There is no one quite like him. Because he meets us at our point of need. He meets us at that point of crisis where we recognize that I sin, I fall short. I am in desperate need of salvation. I am in desperate need of a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. So the question is, do you receive this Jesus? The second question is, is do you believe in this Jesus? Do you believe who he is? That he is none other than the, than the Son than the only Son of the Father, that He is full of grace and truth, using the language of a few verses ahead. Do you believe who He is, and do you believe what He has done? Because not too much further in this first chapter, remember John, the witness, the signpost? What does he say? Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He identifies who Jesus is, and he identifies what Jesus has done. So we receive Jesus into our lives, and we believe in his name. I mean, literally, his name, if you, if you think of it, Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means sovereign, king, one who's in charge. Jesus means one who saves. Jehovah or Yahweh saves. Christ means Messiah, anointed one, you know, God's anointed Savior King. So when you believe in his name, when you acknowledge him for who he is, you must therefore acknowledge him for what he has done. And here's the equals. Remember, receive plus believe equals now become. Become. Well, what do you become? What have I become? Well, I told you that in 1967, I became the son of Dennis and Ruth Aykroyd. That's not a feeling. It's a fact. That's not an idea. It's a legal status. It's a change of name. It's a change of address. It's a change of everything. And look what we become. We become children of God. We're no longer his enemies. We're no longer strangers. We're no longer acquaintances, but we're part of a family. It's absolutely amazing. That's why J.I. Packer says, every morning say, I am a child of God. 
Not only do we have a God who is judge, who now declares us righteous, we have God who's our Father, and He looks upon us as His beloved children. So the question here, what is your relationship with Jesus? I can tell you about God's relationship, God the Father, God the Son. I can tell you about the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus, the forerunner, and the main event. I can tell you the relationship between Jesus and the world. But now here's something that I can't tell, well, I can describe it, but you must, you must answer this question for yourself. I can speak for myself. I can say that yes, I do receive him. I welcome this Jesus. And I do believe in his name. So therefore, God who cannot lie, he tells me that I now am one of his children. Now, 21 Windwood Road was our family home. And for 45 years, I lived in that home or regularly visited that home. I tell you something, I never once rang the doorbell, never once knocked on the door. You know why? My home. That home was owned by my parents, and me and my sister were part of that household. We are God's children by faith in Jesus. We believe in him. We are God's children because we've received Jesus into our lives. And that fact absolutely changes everything. I'm going to paraphrase an old uh, writer. This man was called John Owen and he lived about 400, oh, 350 years ago, uh, 400 years ago. He lived and he ministered in Oxford and he wrote very long commentaries. So the book of Hebrews is 13 chapters. I think his commentary on Hebrews was seven volumes. So he wrote a lot. And one of his comments, he was writing about this privilege called adoption. And he says there are five things that are required. The first is that a person is actually part of another family. I mentioned my first birth certificate. I was a member of the Gilroy family. I have the document. I have the name. I have my mother's name. I have the date and the place of birth, the residence of my birth mother. So I was a member of that family by right. The second point that Owen makes is that there is a family to which we have no right to be included. You see, if years had passed, I was a small child obviously at the time, but if there were years that passed, and I just one day showed up at the home of Dennis and Ruth Aykroyd, and I said, you know what, I'd like to be part of this family. I, I'm not sure what my mother and father would have done. But you see, I had no natural right to be part of that family. I was part of the Gilroy family, and you and I are part of the human race. We are part of that family. But we've just been told that the human race did not receive Jesus. We're just told that the, the particular people that Jesus had come to visit, that they did not welcome him. So you see, what Owen is saying is that you are by right the member of a family. And you are not by right a member of another family. But Owen goes on and he says, 
The third point, which is critical, is that there is one who has the power to translate you or me from one family to another. Now, I don't know the details, but there was a, uh, in the state of New Jersey, there were social services where a family who could not raise their children, for whatever reason, they placed their child in the care of the state of New Jersey. And I was placed in the care of the state of New Jersey. And the state of New Jersey had the authority to place me in the home of an adoptive family called the Ackroyds. But there's an authoritative, there's a power, there's one who has authority to change this child's name, this child's status. And there is one who has the authority to change your status, your circumstances, your identity. And that one is God himself. This is not my this is not my idea. This is not my suggestion, but this is God's word. God says it and therefore he must mean it. Owen goes on to say that there are two main applications or two main truths that come from this. That if you are taken from one family to another, if you're taken from, in my case, the Gilroy family to the Ackroyd family, or in the case of us as believers, we are taken from the world and we are brought into a new relationship with God who we call our Father. Owen says two things follow. The first thing is that we are freed from any prior debt or obligation. So if the Gilroy family were to come to me and say, Bob, or Thomas, if they want to call me Thomas, they would say, Thomas, we brought you into this world. You are a member of our family. We have debts and you have credits. We are poor and you are rich. So you must help us. You're part of the family. Well, actually, I, I, I kind of I told a slight untruth a moment ago because I don't have two birth certificates. You can't really have two birth certificates. I have a legal birth certificate, and I have a birth certificate that was at one time legal, but is legal no more. It actually contains a watermark which says not for legal identification purposes. Because this person called Thomas Gilroy does not exist anymore. He is no longer a legal entity. Robert Ackroyd does. I'm speaking to you right now. But the person described on that first birth certificate does not exist. So if the Gilroy family were to say to me, you need to satisfy these debts, you need to meet these creditors' obligations, I would say I don't. I have no legal responsibility to do so. I have been released from all of those commitments. And you see, when you trust in Jesus, when you believe in him, when you receive him, when you become one of his children, you are now freed from all previous obligations, all prior debts, all previous uh, liabilities. You are completely free. The world, the flesh, the devil have no claim upon you legally anymore. Your legal status has changed. The birth certificate reads, child of God, not child of the world. And finally, positively, not only am I freed from all obligations, I receive all benefits that flow to this new relationship, to this new family. So Nancy, my sister, Denny and Ruth, so when mom and dad died, Nancy and I became beneficiaries. 
we inherited a portion of our parents' estate because we were their children. So not only are all previous obligations canceled, all current benefits are actually ours. So if you are a child of God, all the benefits and all the blessings that belong to God's children are yours by right, not by performance. There are young people here today. I would imagine that the Ross household is not based upon performance. You know, that if their children have a bad day, they're, they're still their children. They're still living in that home. That's just the way it works with families. And you see, you and I as Christians, we do have bad days. We get it wrong. But if we're a child of God, we are a child. We always will be. We never cannot be. So it's not based upon your performance. It's based upon what God says that you are his child. He is your father. And this arrangement that happened in my own experience, it wasn't a trial period. I wasn't fostered. I was adopted. I had a legal change of status, a change of name, a change of address. My parents have always been and will always be my parents. My sister will always be my sister. And what I hope we can see is that when we are his children, every benefit and blessing is ours now by right because he acknowledges us as part of his family. He will never let us go. He will never let us down. All that pertains to his family will be ours. He is our father, Jesus, our elder brother, and you and I are members of this worldwide family that is too numerous to count. So I'm asking you tonight, Christian, do you take this to heart? Do you say to yourself, yes, indeed, I have received him. Oh, yes, I believe in his name. And therefore, God tells me that I am one of his child, children, and I rejoice in that fact. And if you're not yet a Christian, let me tell you all the benefits, all the blessings, forgiveness, grace, new, new birth, uh, reconciliation, uh, adoption, being united with Jesus, heaven to be your home. All that God wants you to enjoy is yours, but you can only receive this blessing by acknowledging his son. When you acknowledge his son, receiving him, believing in him, you now become part of his family. And I want to repeat those six things that Packer said. Every day, say to yourself, I am a child of God. God is my father. Heaven is my home. Every day is one day nearer. My savior is my brother. And every Christian is my brother or sister too. May God grant us the faith to lay hold of this great blessing and benefit through none other than Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your love, your mercy. We thank you that you look upon us with affection and that we can become part of your family through trusting in your Son. Hear and help us, we pray. Do us good, we ask, for the Savior's sake. Amen.
Folks, we're going to sing the final portion of Psalm 103. We're going to sing from verse 12, which begins, As far as east is from the west, so far has his love borne us away. If you understand the points of the compass, you'll realize that if somebody goes east, you always go east. You never go west. You keep going in one direction. If you go north, eventually you'll go south. But not east and not west. They never meet. East and west never meet. And notice verse 13. Just as a father loves his child, God loves those who fear his name. So we're going to sing verses 12 to the end of 103 to God's praise.
Our benediction comes from Romans 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus.